Listener supported. WNYC Studios. When everybody gave up on the neighborhood, we didn't. We stood in the neighborhood. We worked it out. And we made it the better place that everybody wants to invest into now. East New York, that's where we're going this week. Last week on There Goes the Neighborhood, we were in Bed-Stuy. Well, back in the days, it was everybody. We had all my aunt, my mother, sisters, everybody lived in Bed-Stuy. It has changed. Like all these buildings here, people lived in these. I said, did you close on it yet? If you ain't closed on it, we don't have no conversation. He said, well, I came to offer you some money. As I said, you are out of your mind. You have felt and bumped your head. He said, I will have you evicted, and you out on the street, and you won't get nothing. He called Con Ed and said, you can cut the electricity off. I refuse to be moved out of my place, or where I feel comfortable, where I live, where I know people's name, where people know my name, where we look out for each other. I had to find a place where that I knew I wasn't leaving for a while. So what about this place here? It ain't what you know, it's who you know. And I'll just leave it like that. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. I'm Kai Wright. I'm an editor at The Nation magazine. And this week, my WNYC colleagues and I continue our exploration of gentrification with what is perhaps the most basic, urgent question that longtime residents of New York City are asking. Is there still a place for me here? It's a question for renters, homeowners, and developers. And it's coming up in an unlikely place. He was a half block from his home in East New York, Brooklyn, when two teens ambushed him from behind. In the tough neighborhood of East New York, Brooklyn, empty shelves in the church's food pantry tell the story of a community in need. Well, police are looking for the suspects who shot and killed two men in separate incidents in Brooklyn in the East New York section. He suffered multiple gunshot wounds. A lot of people know East New York only for its two infamous stats. It is routinely ranked the city's poorest neighborhood and the one with the highest number of what NYPD calls the seven major felonies. And that is part of the neighborhood story, certainly. But this is somebody's home. A lot of somebody's, actually. East New York, for all of its problems, is home to about 120,000 people, a third of whom are foreign-born and just about all of whom are Black or Latino. And after decades of tough times here, in which those residents fought hard to create homes and build community, East New Yorkers find themselves staring down the next wave of gentrification. Let me um, fix up a little bit right here. Okie dokie. I wanted to hear what people are saying about the coming changes. So I got a tour from an East New York native, Joshua Jacobo, a 29-year-old musician and producer who has spent his whole life here. But who will almost surely find himself homeless if gentrification drives up the rent here the way it has elsewhere in Brooklyn. Joshua drove me by some of the many places he's lived, and he played me one of the songs he's produced. Growing up as um, Hispanic in the neighborhood in the United States at that, I believe I could speak for every Hispanic that's, that embraces their culture in the in America, we don't really speak either language. <laughs> we speak both languages in one. And as if on cue, I used to rent a room right there. 
Let me say hi. Es el pana mío full, no He's shouting out the window at his former landlord. Joshua left his mom's house as a teenager, and he guesses he's rented at least 15 rooms in the decades since then. So that means he's moved more than once a year his entire adult life. And mostly, he's bounced around between situations like this one. So what did that room cost? He's a good friend of our family, and my sister actually um, rents out an apartment from him as well. That was about four or five years ago, but he charged me five hundred dollars a month. That's the that's the cheapest you're gonna get it. Yeah, it's the cheapest. And you know, I'm I'm lucky because you know, that's why I don't leave the neighborhood. I leave the neighborhood. I'm never gonna get any prices like that. I'm well known. I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm well known with all the um, bad history that I could state that I have had in these streets. I got good history. I didn't just all dead or bad. When I sold drugs, I sold drugs and I gave back to my neighborhood. That's what we do. We take care of ours so ours can take care of us. Joshua grew up in the drug trade. He says his dad's family, which migrated here from the Dominican Republic, were all big neighborhood players back in the bad old days of the 80s and 90s. Uh, Mostly my father's family is either dead or deported. Because they were all... Because of the lifestyle of working in drugs and... Uh, the criminality in East New York alone. One of my uncles actually got shot in the head and killed. My dad died of heroin and cocaine. Yes, sir. That's tough. So there's some ugly history here for sure. But, you know, like he said, it's not all bad. His mom's family came to the neighborhood from Puerto Rico in the 40s, and they put down roots here too. Driving around with him now, you begin to see beyond the statistics of crimes and drugs and poverty and feel the love of the place as a home. That store used to be a law firm. And I know because my step-granddaddy used to be um, East New York's um, postal service, and this was his route. And I, as a child, used to walk with him all the time, giving out the mail. In this small neighborhood, we was known as the mailman and the little mailman. He's got an emotional map of the neighborhood. That's why we're, we're, we're considered a community, not a neighborhood. That's why it's, so, it's been so difficult for the gentrification to be embraced in this neighborhood like it has to be in Best-Buy, Crown Heights, Harlem. Harlem is ridiculous. Okay, so that's a lot of stuff we don't usually put together in these conversations drug overdoses, and community building, and gentrification. But they all fit in East New York's story right now. Because it's here, in the neighborhood's northern section, which is predominantly Dominican and Puerto Rican, where Brooklyn's famous brownstones turn into the quirky little row houses of Queens. It's here where Mayor Bill de Blasio intends to begin making his stand against gentrification. You talk to almost any New Yorker, they'll tell you about the pinch they're feeling. They'll tell you about the challenge they're feeling. And they can see the changes around them every single day. And they feel a sense of insecurity that those changes may somehow undermine their lives here. de Blasio introduced his plan last year in his State of the City speech. And he sounded almost philosophical about gentrification. This is some phenomenon that everybody sees, everybody feels, but somehow isn't in the center of the discussion where it needs to be. I am, of course, talking about gentrification. 
and all that it means for this city. And it is complex. The mayor's got to thread a needle here. Because, first off, there's an overall housing shortage in New York and in booming cities all over the country. We very much need more housing. De Blasio's plan would encourage developers to build it. But the trick is getting them to build housing for people who can only afford $500 a month in rent. Because there's an even more acute affordable housing shortage. Everywhere. The majority of poor renters now spend more than half of their income on housing costs. Here in New York City, we're short by more than half a million units. And actually, we're so far short that if you doubled the stock of units that are affordable to poor New Yorkers, there'd still be a shortage. And that's just right now. Never mind our continued population growth. So de Blasio has to get developers to build, but get them to build for poor people, too. His plan would use a combination of incentives, subsidies, and mandates to pull that off. Critics, however, have complained loudly that he's not demanding nearly enough from developers. And this week, it appeared as though he finally agreed to toughen the plan's affordable housing mandates. Whatever emerges from their negotiations, East New York will be the proving ground. It's the first of 15 long-neglected neighborhoods that will be rezoned under the plan. Residents aren't at all happy to play that role. Joshua certainly isn't. If you never lived there, you can't call what's the problem in our neighborhood. So you cannot tell us what we need to fix. We could tell you what we need to fix. That's him venting his anger during one of several public hearings on the mayor's housing plans. Hundreds of people came to this one, ostensibly to talk about zoning. But really, because these hearings became a rare chance for New Yorkers to air our heightening fears about who does and who does not have a place in this city. And all I see is overpopulating the city with others. The only ones that could afford this rent is people that's not from New York. Okay, and my income doesn't even give enough for a room in East New York. So how the hell is going to give me for an apartment? Here's the deal with Joshua. He's not homeless, technically speaking. But Joshua is at best marginally employed. His music producing brings in some money. He picks up other gigs here and there. It's just hustling my way to make sure that, you know, I have the ends for the month. And he says he gets a disability check. It all adds up to maybe $600 a month. Nowhere near enough to compete in even the neighborhood's existing housing market. So the only thing that's kept Joshua from sleeping in the streets is his network. Where he's living now, or as he puts it, sitting down, it's just where he landed after his most recent eviction a couple months ago. So, you know, I was fortunate that uh, I had this good friend that helped me out. And, um, yeah, we're there for for the time being, but, you know, sometimes you're not too proud of saying stuff like that, but that's what I'm part of. And hoping that I one day wake up with a creative mind and with that big hit that get me out. So maybe he will be one of the lucky ones. He might. Does he sound good? Yeah, it's a party song. Like it's, oh, here we go, here we go, here we go. Can you hear it? Yep. Wow. Oh, hey. Right? Wow. Don't tell him. So I'm talking with Rebecca Carroll and D.W. Gibson. The, the thing about Joshua's story is it illustrates a defining aspect of poverty, that you don't have a stable home. You're constantly churning through housing. 
Gentrification makes that churn way more dangerous because not only does it drive up prices, but it breaks up the network of friends and families and neighbors who can keep you out of homelessness. Each time the bottom fell out for Joshua, he was able to find another place, someone else who was willing to give him a room for 500 bucks or whatever he had. Who might be looking to capitalize on their own space to try to make their own ends meet. Uh, if they've got $500 rent, if Josh is going to stay in one of the rooms and can throw 100 bucks at them, that helps their own case. Or because it is this community, this kinfolk, this kinship that they have created over all this time and helped each other out. Right. I mean, it's kind of funny because when he's shouting at his landlord at the beginning of that tape, you know, he got evicted from that apartment. The landlord put him out. But they're still friends. But in the East New York that Joshua describes growing up with generations before him, it's about survival. And those are the biggest most serious stakes you can think of. And that is not a part of the puzzle for the quote-unquote better people that are going about their careers, going about their lives individually. Individually, outside of community, and often longing for the idea of community that they've seen that a lot of black culture represents. Longing to be part of that. Joshua's aware of that. He mentioned something about this. Listen to this. Biggie Smalls was, he embraced to let know people from China that's listening to Juicy, what was best Stuyvesant? You understand? That's that's why when you hear like a song, Brooklyn, we go hard. That's what it means. We go hard. No matter where you put us in the globe, we're going to explain to you by our demeanor, the way we walk, talk. We're from Brooklyn. But the identity of what Brooklyn mm-hmm. is to the rest of the world isn't Biggie Smalls anymore. It isn't. Which it isn't. They don't realize that it it is because without that, you wouldn't have a Williamsburg. I think what's fascinating about that is is that the culture and that community and that sense of real Brooklyn, it gets packaged, but it gets repackaged in a sense. You know, it's not actually the authentic kind of Brooklyn that Joshua was talking about. It's the Brooklyn that Joshua was talking about through the lens of whiteness. Well, and it gets repackaged and then sold back. <laughs> For tons of money. For tons of money. One real estate agent I talked to who's white talked about how a lot of his buyers love the idea of a cool hanging out with danger. Those two things go very well together, as he put it. And a lot of his buyers like that sense of danger might be out there somewhere, but it's with cool, so it's safe. You know, those two ideas of cool and danger hanging out is something he really focused on and focuses on with a lot of buyers. Joshua gets it. He gets that he's created something here. Warts and all, something that is about to be for sale. And after all he and his family have been through, the violence and the abandoned buildings and blocks full of empty lots, he gets that he may not have a place in the neighborhood's future. When everybody gave up on the neighborhood, we didn't. We stood in the neighborhood. We worked it out and we made it the better place that everybody wants to invest into now. After the break, DW talks to a Brooklyn developer about just who is investing in East New York now. Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis. When I was dead broke, man, I couldn't picture that. Here's our question this week. Whether you rent or own, has your rent or mortgage increased with the residential changes in your neighborhood? Call and tell us at 1-646-783-9692 or write to us at wnyc.tumblr.com. 
So now DW is going to take us back to East New York and show us what developers see when they look around Joshua's neighborhood. I think East New York as a location is extraordinary. Meet Boaz Galad of Brookland Capital. He's been in Brooklyn real estate for over a decade. And like Joshua, he likes to talk about the old days. I used to go to networking events in 2006 and used to say I'm a Brooklyn developer and people used to say, great, and walk back to the shrimp cargo. Okay? Now when I walk into networking events, I say Brooklyn developer, I'll be like, oh my gosh, can I talk to you? We had... Carlisle and Blackstone and Goldman Sachs. I mean, they've all been to this office where you're sitting. Galad is particularly excited about East New York. And when I ask him why, he mentions abundant transportation, the Jackie Robinson Parkway and multiple subway lines. But mostly, he sees potential in the old manufacturing areas of the neighborhood. Things are made in China and, you know, and we buy furniture at Ikea. So there's all those areas that are just standing half empty. And now those empty factories that used to provide jobs for the community are the places eyed by developers to turn them into luxury housing. But as excited as Galad is about East New York, he can't make his move, not yet anyway. That's because he doesn't have enough money. First of all, we're a public company in Israel. Uh, but we're managing about over 1,000 units, over $500 million of uh, assets right now. It's hard to get your head around that fact. Galad has half a billion dollars in assets, but still... It isn't enough to get in the game. One of the challenges with East New York is because there's so much conversation about it, and they're selling you, telling you a story, oh, you should buy it because in the future it's going to be worth. But unless you're a big, big player, you don't have the ability financially to go into something that will be ready in five years. And the big players are buying up big buildings, not only the empty factories, but also large apartment buildings with hundreds of rent-stabilized units. The Bluestone Group recently bought a 210-unit building, which is just a portion of a bigger apartment complex for $30 million. The Pinnacle Management Group, which is well known for converting no fewer than 80 rent-stabilized units to market rate in Crown Heights, just bought a 318-unit building in East New York for $53 million. And as Galad points out, it's not just the sticker price. It's the time required to sit it out and wait for the coffee shops and the craft beer bars to come to the neighborhood, and with them, more tenants willing to pay higher rents. Glad says that managing such long-term investments and large-scale projects requires political might. The ability to negotiate with a city as it balances motivating developers and protecting long-time residents. They either take care of really poor people or really big players who have connections and lobbyists with the city and with the state, they have also the political power to modify things. They can go and sit with commissioners and with high-ranked people and say, I need an extra block. Can you give me a bonus? It's really the big guys who can move the needle one way or another. And the needle is moving. In 2010, there was $1 billion in commercial real estate transactions in Brooklyn, according to Terra CRG, a real estate group that tracks this type of data. And in 2015, that number jumped to $9.5 billion. That's over an 800% increase in investments in just five years. This has mostly happened in western and central Brooklyn, places like Bed-Stuy, where we hung out with Monica Bailey last week. But now, with the mayor's plan to encourage new development in East New York, that same appreciation may be happening there, too. Which is why the mayor's plan has generated so much fear and anger here in East New York. People are horrified about those escalating prices. And they're right to be, because the mayor's plan for building more affordable housing here is rooted in an important assumption that the market in East New York will heat up slowly. That would force developers to lean on public subsidies to build and thus give the city more leverage in getting more affordable units online. But, and this is a really big but, 
what if the market heats up quickly? Which, as DW explained, is precisely what has happened all over Brooklyn in the past five years. Well, then the gold rush could start here, too. In fact, if you ask homeowners in the neighborhood, they'll tell you it already has. One good place to meet up with them is Sunday morning in church. We went to St. Peter's Lutheran, where Pastor David Binky and his congregation have become players in the debate over the mayor's plan for the neighborhood. St. Peter's is in uh, the northern part of East New York, and in the 70s when I came, it was a community in deep transition, was German and Italian, and uh, within five years, it it flipped over to become black and Latino. Now our church is uh, 90% non-white and has become a neighborhood stronghold for Caribbean Basin kind of people. This, of course, followed the history of Brooklyn generally. West Indian migration to New York goes way back to the turn of the 20th century. They first settled in Harlem, but the center of gravity gradually shifted to Brooklyn over the decades. The borough now has the largest Caribbean expat community in the world. And Bengalis, the latest group, is from Bangladesh. So it's become a very diverse, multicultural parish. Binky's clearly proud of the congregation's willingness to greet each round of newcomers and embrace the chaotic cultural mix that makes Brooklyn, Brooklyn. And it's known as a church that's active in its community, that cares, and that isn't afraid. But their fearlessness has limits. After all, there's the kind of change that's about growing, adding new things to your world, and then there's the kind that's about replacement, or creating a world you've got to leave. Binky has been among the community's most vocal critics of the mayor's plan for East New York, and it looms over St. Peter's services. And now we open up our prayers for our community and the world, Heavenly Father. Help us to find a, a just and fair solution to our own neighborhood situation as we move forward in this rezoning process. May it be one they not only pray over it, Binky regularly closes out service by counseling homeowners not to sell their house because... Several of the congregants are being bombarded with offers, like Annette Evanson. I spoke with Annette in the chapel after service one Sunday about her family's own long history in the neighborhood. She still knows the exact date she became a Brooklynite. So you arrived here September 3rd, 1978. You were how old? I don't even remember how old I was then. (laughs) She tried describing their trip straight from JFK Airport to their new home nearby St. Peter's. We took a cab over because my husband had visited in 77 and he was scouting schools because he was always an education buff. Yeah, the memories. (sighs) It's hard to talk about the neighborhood without bumping into painful memories of her husband. She lost him to liver cancer in 2008. Her husband's parents came up from Trinidad first. They bought a three-story house on Barbie Street and then sit for the rest of the family. The whole extended family has called that house home ever since. All of Annette's in-laws, her husband's parents, his brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews, plus her own kids, they've all been in and out of the house using it as a base as they've gradually spread out to find new homes of their own. Annette still lives there with her son Rick and his kids. And after four decades, her sense of family extends into the neighborhood, too. I'm grandma and older, a thousand kids. My block, back in the day, used to be the block 
here. All the kids would gather. And if they're going to fight, I would be the first one out. But in trying to explain her investment in the place, she lands on one particular memory. A story she says will really illustrate why she can't even imagine leaving Barbie Street. Not long after Carl's death, that was her husband's name, Carl Evanson, Annette had the first of two strokes that she suffered. I say, hold on. She starts to black out. She hears her daughter get her son. She hears them fussing over an ambulance. She hears the worry about whether she'll be taken to a good hospital. She was slipping into what would be a nine-day coma. In this nine days, I'll give you an experience you would not believe. I have a neighbor down the block from me. Two sisters. A Latino family. They came to her inside her coma. She remembers hearing the rosary. Now, these sisters, we live on Barbie as family. We all there for each other. And I'm hearing the voices saying the rosary. I'm trying to recognize them, and I can't. So I try to open my eyes, and I see the two sisters. She wakes up, and there they are. They were right there praying over my bed. And on that journey, in that nine days I was out, you wouldn't imagine where I had been. She goes on to describe this magical journey where she's able to be with her late husband and church members who died and all of them ushering her back toward the land of the living. And I understand her point. For New Yorkers who pass through the city as transients a few years at a time, marking a youthful stage or a job opportunity, the city can often feel impenetrably dense and boundless. That's part of its joy. But not in East New York, and not for Annette. For her, at the brink of life and death stand neighbors. If something goes wrong, I fall in the street, you know, because of my health. Somebody's going to help me to get to where I'm going. Because they know me. Everybody knows me. And you don't think that would happen somewhere else? No. No. But here's the deal. Something may actually be going wrong. Because these days, her phone is ringing off the hook with people who have identified the Evansons as vulnerable and think they just might sell out. Cheap. They call my mom all the time. That's Rick, Annette's son. He owns the house now. He's had trouble keeping up with the utilities and taxes, and Wells Fargo filed a pre-foreclosure notice several years ago. Rick insists that was a mistake, that he's never even had a loan with Wells Fargo. And this kind of confusion is common. Lenders and servicers have passed around mortgages and have been infamously bad at keeping the borrowers in the loop. But whatever happened for Rick, the point is the people scouting for distressed properties, they are targeting his house. I had a guy walking around my backyard. Yeah, I'm looking to buy this property. I said, who are you looking to buy the property for? I own it. He says, oh, dude, it's listening for a close. I said, listen, dude, you're confused. Right now, you better get out of my yard before I do something to you. And 90% of the time, they're Caucasian. Hmm. And this is just how intense the real estate market is today, even before the mayor's plan takes effect. Remember, we are talking about East New York, the supposedly dangerous and crime-filled neighborhood. This is where developers are shopping. But then, when you consider the neighborhood's history, maybe it's not so surprising. Realtors and developers and lenders have been manipulating this place for decades. 
And that is an important thing to remember about gentrification. When a neighborhood changes, it's usually by design. After all, that's how East New York got to be so poor in the first place. Next week, we'll explain. There were scare tactics going on. There were even pamphlets put out attributed to black people, obviously written by a white pretending to be such. You know, uh, we're going to get whitey. People coming in and basically saying that if you don't sell, you're going to lose the value of your home. There Goes the Neighborhood is a production of WMYC Studios and The Nation magazine. It's recorded and mixed by Casey Means with additional technical support from Bill Moss. Our associate producer is John Asante. Sean Carlson is our researcher. Janet Babin and Bridget Bergen contributed recordings to this episode. Terrence Blanchard composed our theme music. Thanks to our digital team, including Lee Hill, Delaney Simmons, Frank Roberts, and Annie Shields. D.W. Gibson, Jim O'Grady, Kai Wright, and me, Rebecca Carroll, contributed to the reporting and producing of this episode. Our editor and executive producer is Karen Frillman. To subscribe to this podcast, go to wnyc.org slash neighborhood. And to read more, go to thenation.com. And if you want to check out more of Joshua, go to his YouTube page and watch his videos. That's Doble J, the number two, B-L-E-J-A-Y. Support for There Goes the Neighborhood has been provided by the Ford Foundation, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the New York Community Trust, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Last week, we asked listeners to tell us their stories about race and gentrification, and they did. Here's what one woman from Brooklyn said. My name is Alia, and I mean, I think race is the core of gentrification, but for me, it's very complicated as a young Arab woman, what is my role when I come into a new neighborhood? How many steps removed from the gentrifiers I am and how many steps removed am I from about to be gentrified because I also have a job that isn't that high paying and at some point I will probably be priced out of Leopard's Garden. Though right now I walk around and I'm certainly not part of the original inhabitants. So I struggle with this idea of where other races fit in within that space of rich white person and poor black person who's been here for generations. This week, we want you to tell us your affordable housing or rent stories. Whether you rent or own, has your rent or mortgage increased with the residential changes in your neighborhood? Call and tell us at 1-646-783-9692 or write to us at wnyc.tumblr.com. <laughs>